Mohamed Salah just said to me that um, it was incumbent on me to say something uh, trenchant and conclusory, uh, which I hadn't. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I've, um, which I'm not going to do, but I'm gonna, which, I, which I'm going to fail to do. We we do have a very happy, happy collaborative relationship, which is uh, whatever Mohamed Salah says I should do. Right? <laughs> 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 um, no, but I mean, in, in, in fact, over the last nine months. In Oxford, it has been a very exciting um, and, and, and a happy collaboration. Um, leading, you know, li leading um, that kind of, you know, dubious metaphors of journeys and so on. Nevertheless, there is a there is a feeling of leading somewhere. Um, but our high point, you know, where it's led to at the, at the moment is this, um, which for me has been quite an overwhelming um, couple of days, and I think that's a, a feeling that's been quite widely, um, widely shared, that kind of anxiety. The idea of this um, round table is that it should be sort of metaphorically a, a round table, so this should be a, there's an invisible, um, thinking back to Bettiel's paper about the, the ghostly invisible presence of something, so there's a kind of ghostly round table in the middle of the room with everyone arranged around it in a circle. Nevertheless, um, we felt it would be good to, to, to ask um, some of us to try to say some <laughs> summing up kinds of things at the beginning to give something for the discussion to bite on. Um, and I, all of us, uh, were kind of anxiously at the front uh, being tasked with this. Me, me, me certainly feeling a bit anxious about what we can, uh, what we can say. So what we're going to do is kind of offer up, I hope, some, um, some lines of, uh, for, for further exploration. I just think, sh should we set an end point? Because, I mean, the discussion could go on until midnight, obviously, couldn't it? Should we try to to make it last for an hour or something and finish at past six, is that a good, good thing, thing to aim for ourselves? Um, I think part of the kind of excitement and overwhelmingness for me in the last couple of days has been to do with um, the uh, question of um, positionality, which has come up in, came up in Amar's paper um, and, also, and also elsewhere, which is to say that where you're looking at the thing from changes how it looks to you and changes what you're doing. Um, one of the points that emerged very interestingly, the complexities that emerged from Amar's paper in that session was, you know, the interest in the local, in the place where you are, but also that the local is, you know, connected to, you know, to, to, to lots of other places. And what's happened here today and yesterday is that this place, you know, this, this Oxford place that it is, uh, that we're in has changed um, because of those of you who come from far away to bring, as it were, your, your own positionalities into our discussions. Um, so that's been a very um, exciting thing. If I'm just sort of speaking on behalf of the Oxford grouping, that's been a very um, exciting thing for us. The other thing that's come into focus, especially this morning, um, has been the uh, point that uh, Wen Chin raised in her question, particularly earlier today, um, which is to say that the relation between comparisons of you know, literary texts, relations, intertextuality within the thing called literature, um, and intertextuality across different forms. Um, the relation between translation as a linguistic thing and translation across um, different media. Um, and I hope that's something we can explore more in the next hour or so, putting into question, wondering how we might think across these supposedly, you know, according to Jacobson at least, you know, decades ago, different types of translation. There's one type of translation which is within language and there's another type of translation which is between different media. What occurred to me, um, or one of the many things that occurred to me listening to you know, Aisha Gidmazak's talk um, this morning is that thinking about, thinking a bit about illustration um, and <coughs> writing in relation to illustration and 
one of the things about writing, obviously, is that it, it is a visual form, and there are things that have significance in writing, patterns and so on, which are not, um, don't have you know, meaning in the way words have meaning, don't have conventionally encoded meaning, but are you know, iconic in the way that visual images are iconic. Um, and one of the things that illustrators can do, one of the things that both translators and illustrators do, is find ways of representing shapes that there are um, in, the, in the text. And so that's one way in, in, in which, for me, these you know, different types, you know, are, are not really different types of translations, a continuity between translation across, across media and translation across text, written text. And then that means what, what follows on from that is that the sort of borderlines one might, distinctions one might draw between different, you know, different media, different kinds of work sort of start to, start to shift a little bit. So that's something I, I wanted to offer about that. Um, third thing I want to say is that I was really struck by, I mean, Yurt's uh, presentation, one of the things I was really pleased by was the, um, the way you drew attention to the aspect of British other ways on, of, um, of, of, of comparative literature. That it, there was an essayistic aspect to it, the way that you, you pointed to 19th century people of letters, um, essayists, for whom then the, the act of criticism, the practice of criticism um, is... A, you know, style, um, the, the, the entity that you're, you know, the kind of thing you're doing, um, especially in folks, it's not taken for granted that you're in a structure of, you know, you're accomplishing a task within a, a structure of knowledge, but in a sense you have to establish your own terms in the act of writing, um, and your, your, your style of writing is, 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 is part of that, that there's a sort of uh, claim to attention that you have to make, and the style of writing is, is part of that. For me, I mean, I've come up through an English literature, I've come after an English literature department, and for me, um, the, real, the real challenge about um, operating in this kind of space, by comparison with the space that, that, that I was operating in before, is that if you, you, know, you have a conference on Dickens or something, there's a, there's a shared kind of knowledge of the texts that are being talked about that you can rely on. Um, whereas here, you know, the, the excitement of the last couple of days is that many of us were hearing about things, texts that we didn't, didn't know about. And that puts a particular responsibility on each of us, doesn't it, to represent not only to make the argument that we want to make, but to represent the, the text object that we're making the argument about. And so that means that, that, that for me, something that preoccupies me is, is this pressure that there is on our own practices as critics. This is something that Ronald Judy uh, drew, drew attention to, I, th I, I thought, particularly. Um, one thing I, ju I just wanted, there's a sort of um, more practical aspect to this, which is that what we're doing is being disseminated in various ways, um, so that there are these recordings which are being put on, on the website. Um, some of the graduate students here and early career fellows have been writing responses, accounts of and responses to the sessions which are going to be put up on the website. Um, and there are various, several publishers, a, a journal and several publishers kind of clamouring to publish our, our, our stuff that we've been doing here. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm very anxious to do is in that sort of moving, thinking about how to, you know, if, if, if you're all willing or, or many of you are willing to move towards re-representing our discussions in printed form um, is to find a way of, of doing that without losing the sense of being in the thick of it, which was, I think, your phrase, wrong, which is to say the, the sense of this being a sort of uh, a, a, discussion in, you know, a discussion in process in which kind of, uh, you know, the responses uh, matter as much as the presentations, and often in the move to, you know, conference proceedings, that aspect of it gets, gets lost. The other thing I wanted to say about our, 
our website, which we want to put more and more material on, is that people read it from all over the world. People read it, I, I know, since the Edward Snowden leaks, that he's been visiting her. No, I mean, you can tell. <laughs> 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 you can tell, and people read it in 60 countries. Um, so we're more international than the, than, the, uh, than the International Comparative Literature Association. And so what's, what's exciting about that is, you know, is that it has a, there's a positionality aspect to that as well, which is this opening and encounter um, with different points, points of view. So I, ju I just wanted to uh, kind of open that as a prospect, but also raise it as, a, um, as an intellectual question, which is to say that, um, that the practice of, of um, criticism is something that, for me, thinking about what it should be like, thinking about how you adequately translate into your own critical writing the thing that you're talking about in order to convey what matters to it to the other person who hasn't read it um, is something that's of really crucial importance in this, in this sort of context. Um, what I'm going to do now um, is pass on to, to Laura, who's going to make a brief comment because she's only been able to be here today. And I was here quite a long time. Sorry. Shall I, shall I say you are this okay. professor? I mean, some, some people may not. This is this Professor Laura Marcus from English faculty, um, who's, uh, who's a, has a wonderfully um, wide-ranging and incisive uh, writers, especially about Wolf, um, about biography and autobiography, and, and more recently about, about film, about, about film, writing about film, really. Um, it's been really most interesting. Thank you. Yes, I will be very brief. Um, I've enjoyed it hugely, but there's been so much going on, I don't think I could feel I could funnel it into um, any, any single sort of trip sort of topic. But so, so there's just some things that are occurring to me. Um, and I suppose one is to say, you know, how much I think we're indebted to Matthew for bringing us together, but also from a very personal point of view, how much we're indebted to Matthew for really getting all of us up and running around the comparative literature project. and. You know, I don't want to be broken about Oxford, it's not the universe, other things happen elsewhere, um, but it is very uh, important, I think, that we do start thinking uh, in these different ways when some of our syllabi have been very unchanged for a long, a long, long time. Um, so I suppose that's that question of you know, thinking the comparative literature, thinking comparative criticism, but I suppose what has struck me, just from picking up on something um, Matthew has just said, uh, relating to an earlier point about the the semiotics of language, image, music, the whole question of intermediality and interart um, analogies that really our borders then dissolve. And then in a way what we seem to be asking for is a project that founded the new universities of the 1960s, like the University of Kent and the University of Sussex and UEA and York with its English and related literatures. You know, which, and Warwick, of course, which, of which had a modern language requirement for English, certainly. But the, the sort of sense and um, that, you know, one doesn't perhaps want to go back to the terms of interdisciplinarity, but really this is going beyond <coughs> comparative literature, perhaps, and us, all of us, perhaps, are, are wanting to rethink the borders, uh, whether our disciplinary borders need to be refigured. And I think the problem, at least in the UK, was that that important project which founded those new universities was then really closed down and there was a retreat back into <coughs> single disciplines again. And maybe we're just at a juncture which is, as I say, beyond the, the question of comparative literature, but about wanting to rethink the shape of, of, all, our, of all our disciplines. Because actually, where would you draw the, 
the limits, it, you know, inter-art analogies are fine, so I work on literature and film, and it's very important for me to be able to do that. And I have actually found this, the discipline of English discipline, you know, its, it's borders are fuzzy. They, we don't protect them in the way that philosophy does, for example. Um, you know, so I have been able to work on psychoanalysis and film and autobiography, which seems to be a very, always a comparative. You wouldn't want to do autobiography through a single national focus. I'm currently working on a, a concept, um, the concept of rhythm across the range of disciplines. Um, perhaps one has to be careful, and this goes back to the music um, literature paper, that as Wendy Steiner says, what might look like an identity might be a homophone, and we need to think our homophone identity kind of um, relationship. But then, you know, what, what of history, what of philosophy, what of the human sciences, what of the natural sciences? So if it's not going to be just, a, you know, we, we then, so I suppose what I'm saying is we, we have to start cutting our, our jigsaw puzzle perhaps in, in different ways. And I think that's what really, what these debates are about, which is perhaps why it's difficult to get a kind of absolute handle on them for me. But within that, clearly, there are issues about translation, about modern languages. And this is where I retreat to a smaller point, which is, um, you know, I'm not in the modern languages faculty, but I, I do wonder whether, um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking to people who know hugely more about it than I am, but I, I do wonder whether we couldn't do a little bit more in the universities to make those, in, in the UK at least, to make those languages available to people. I suppose I'm not entirely happy with the model of Comlet where we say, well, we spend our time showing how um, inadequate translations are to the original, even if we're comparing three or four or five of them in their different inadequacies. Um, and in the States, and people from the States because aren't this better, um, languages for academic purposes are made available. Graduate students are required to do them. And when I've asked here whether, you know, it doesn't seem right to me that I have students working on Freud who have no German. Um, but when I ask about this, I'm told, well, we have to get students through in three years, especially if they're HRC funded, et cetera, et cetera. We can't ask them to do the additional. But I suppose my question to modern languages experts would be, can we not have that smaller conversation as well as the bigger one about our disciplinary frameworks? So I'll stop there. Well, to, to uh, echo the uh, last panel, I'm going to speak in metaphors, but because I don't, don't really have time, I'm sure, I'm, I'm afraid they may end up being riddles to echo the other paper as well. But basically, I'm going to just mention seven words, maybe in less than a minute each. And this is uh, really to try to have the impossible task of describing patterns of literary exchange as they came through uh, the papers or methodological issues as they came through the papers, or positions that papers have taken or that comparative literature has taken. And, and the first of these uh, falls under the category I call imperial spoils, and or the other term of it is the war booty. And this means basically there was a, a moment uh, to what extent we can talk about the, the literary exchange as a time where simply the cultures and literatures of the world became available because of the imperial projects, therefore available for us to appropriate and use. The reverse of that is, if you remember, some of you may remember the Algerian writer, Francophone writer, Kate Yassine, when he was asked, why are you writing in French? He said, I consider it a war booty. 
it came with the war and I win it. So you see the reverse of the two. The second metaphor is, uh, I call it imperial envy. And here you may have seen how much of actually Germany and France was, was going on. And I wonder if the, the, the concept of imperial envy uh, can talk about that. But related to this is the, the, the uh, um, Muslim historian Ibn Khaldun, who wrote in the 14th century, has this famous statement in which he talks about the, that, the, that the victim is always uh, uh, fond of imitating the victorious or the winner. And that creates the ideas of imitation, adaptation, but from what position? The uh, third one, I call it adornment. And here, I was, again, a lot of Goethe was, was going on through, through the conference, to the, uh, this conference, and I was thinking in terms of how much of literary borrowing and literary adaptation and so on, certain times, is actually a matter of taste, a matter of fashioning self-image, a matter of fashion even. So, for example, was actually Goethe adorning his art, was actually his work embellishing, decorating, and how much of the, of the literary exchange can fall under this. And, uh, and the four, I call it formative or aesthetically formative. In other words, and I didn't see a whole lot of that except that Mikhaili tried to do that in his paper, how much actually in what we borrow or what we take from other cultures or other arts actually goes in the fabric of what we're actually trying to produce. And he actually uh, stayed a little bit away from that, say that music, uh, and there was a wond wonderful debate that. And I think this, this needs, uh, needs airing more. The, f the fifth point is transfer. And here again, I return to Mihaly's paper, and as he was given his paper, I was thinking, how can I apply all this knowledge to the languages and literatures I know? And, and Patrick McGuinness raised the question of national uh, constraints of this inter-arts uh, work, but uh, he, le he left it again within, within France and, and so on. But I was thinking, how about the rhythms of music in Arabic and how the literature works with that, and I think that opens vistas for all of us. Number uh, six, and I'm running for these uh, quickly, and this came from the floor, and the term guilt. Uh, someone, you, I think, mentioned the word guilt, and I call it atonement. In other words, it raised the question to what extent is, is it an academic practice? Is world literature a form of atonement? Is it a form <laughs> of, uh, compar is comparative literature also a form of atonement? Uh, in that sense, in a climate of general atonement going on. Um, the uh, point seven is exteriority or south-south, and this was mentioned in, in Judy's paper, was mentioned in the, in the discussion of Amar's paper, and it raises, uh, as, Mike, uh, as uh, Matt was talking about, the question of positioning. From where are we looking and to what extent we're making explicit our positions, looking from elsewhere, uh, as in the two papers I mentioned. The last uh, one is I call enlightenment in a different sense. In other words, to what extent the literatures that I am engaging with, uh, or borrowing as a writer, or and then analyzing as a critic, to what, tell, what extent they tell me about myself, what extent they tell me about my humanity. And in the end, uh, we have not seen much of that in this, in this conference, I, I must say, but uh, I don't mean the humanity. We haven't seen this much, this much. It has been extremely enlightening and a lot of light motives in it, as you said earlier. Uh, but uh, to what extent, I think this is the pursuit uh, we're after in the end. And I must mention just one um, uh, adornment. Uh, you, you probably all know that Goethe was officially declared Muslim. 
of a reading stand. Depends how far the lid bends back. Well, it doesn't fall off in the middle. And if the juice runs out, you'll have to give me two minutes to plug it in again. Um, yeah, I'd like to begin by quoting from page three of Michael Franklin's handout. I wanted to acknowledge the speaker as well as the writer. The writer is William Jones. Uh, this very short quotation. Rumi's Masnavi is like a wild country in a fine climate, overspread with rich flowers and with the odour of beasts. I think that's rather a fine description of this conference. <laughs> <laughs> it's been exuberantly plural. Um, to shift my metaphor, and I've now become hyper-conscious of the stuff with metaphors and similes, it's not like, but it is, uh, a coral reef. Um, I thought of other things like firework display, but that's too ephemeral. Coral reefs apparently are rather ephemeral in the long term, but they last longer than firework. Um, so, and I think that the coral reef is quite a nice metaphor because it suggests a common ecological environment sustaining um, a whole range of interactive and interdependent life forms, i.e. us, and our arguments and thoughts. Um, I've been incredibly impressed and overwhelmed by the uh, range of cultural and linguistic skills here, much far more than most conferences one goes to, uh, where people seem to operate between several languages with uh, effortlessly, and so I'm a bit daunted by that. Um, may I add my thanks to um, uh, Laura's, to uh, Matthew, um, for getting the coral reef up and running. Um, and uh, also, I think we should thank Celine, yes. uh, who's done a lot of work too. And um, in another area, uh, I think we should thank Eleanor as well, Eleanor Schaffer, who is really a beacon yes. and has done, again, more work than has been visible and has characteristically been low-key and so on. But thank you, Eleanor. It's great to be working, doing this in the same room with you. Well, we've had a lot of wonderful quotations from Goethe, and I particularly like uh, this one from Helen Slaney's talk. A lot of this is quotations, by the way, from people and from, well, they're all from people, because who else quotes? But, <laughs> yeah, people like us as opposed to people like Goethe. <laughs> okay, knowledge of the natural materials that man transforms for his needs helps me, Goethe, to get a clearer idea of the craftsman's technique. And I think in the original there's an extra word, the artist and the craftsman's technique, uh, but that doesn't make a lot of a difference here. Um, what Goethe's remark suggests, I think, is, um, is, an, is a hands-on approach, tangibly connected to the material world which we inhabit and which shapes all our thought from the bottom up. And literary criticism, literary criticism in my view, is preeminently a bottom-up practice. And I'd like to keep that in focus uh, in our discussions. Well, it's not for me to say what should be in focus, but uh, that's what I'm throwing to you as a thought. Um, Goethe also says he has the gift for handling a lot of things in a short time, and that's what Matthew's asked us to do, and I've almost run out of my time already. Um, you know, um, we're all suffering from cognitive overload here, and uh, perhaps we should, can be forgiven for... Um, handling it in fragmentary ways. 
So these are just notes and fragments and comments and so on. So Johannes Kaminski said, asked, can you avoid replacing one universalism with another? And I think I would answer, no, why should you want to try? Um, universalist conceptions and relativist conceptions are simply positions on a gradient that has no endpoints. Uh, if you theorize them as endpoints, you falsify the picture, in my view. And I, th I think that um, there's nothing wrong with a universalist conception as a, as a heuristic tool, provided you know it's that. Um, particulars, one might say, elaborating that a bit, are co coordinates from which we extrapolate general concepts or categories, which in turn, in the circular mode, help us better to manage the particulars of experience. That's just what thinking is. It operates between those poles, or if you like. Instead of thinking, you use the word cognition. So we always live in the middle between those poles, shifting between them. And just one other little point on that same uh, line. Human culture, I would have said, um, is a phenomenon in nature, in nature, and continuous with it, um, not uh, its polar antithesis. So I could say some things about theory here, um, but I'm not going to, it'll take me too far uh, off the track and I'm probably out of time now. Um, somebody asked, it wasn't so on, was it? I think it was somebody around that point, because it's in my notebook around that stage when so on gave her a uh, very good paper. Can we remove power as part of the picture? And that's a very important question, I think, uh, in the whole, well, the post-colonial world literature uh, domain, power has come up over and over again. Uh, powerful metaphors, powerful political systems and so on. And I think the answer is no, you can't remove power as part of the picture, but, but it's a weak explanatory principle because it applies in virtually all cases. I'm tempted to say all, but I said we shouldn't reify our universalism. Um, Power relations govern, govern a great deal of human activity and thought, but that doesn't mean that they should always be the primary explanatory frame, um, particularly when they're understood or dramatised, if you like, as being always being sinister or violent. Um, there are other kinds of relations that provide uh, alternative explanatory frames or metaphors for cultural transfer, such as the, that artisanal handling of materials that Goethe speaks of, and the passing on of those skills, um, uh, either generationally or cross-cultural fr uh, uh, frontiers. Uh, and of course, trading relations, not as an expression of neocon politics, uh, but defined to include diplomacy negotiations. And these are things I think we've uh, been aware of uh, for a long time, but we need to bring them back into, the, into focus here. Okay, um, I was gonna give a list of the different theories and mythologies that were alluded to or used during the last two days, but it's too long and will take about 10 minutes to, uh, to enumerate. Um, I, I think I do want to put in a plea um, uh, here. If there's to be a new comparative criticism, I hope it won't take for granted any of the prevalent theoretical doxas of the last 50 years. That's not because I want to deny anybody the right to think they are the most powerful modes of explanation, but I think uh, it's, it's time now, uh, in 2013, for a, a, a rather thorough reappraisal of one's theories and methodologies and the things one has taken over from uh, earlier 
theorists and critics for the last 50 years or so. Um, I don't see why that reappraisal shouldn't start here, among other places. So, um, uh, um, okay, we'll leave that out. Um, I will put in a bit about here about cognitive approaches, but I think that's just my plug that I I'll leave that out. We can come back to it later if you like. Um, I would have liked to talk about music and literature in that context, about metaphors um, and other things, but we'll um, come to the end now. Um, in a, another strand of my life, um, at a project we're doing, um, we've come up with the phrase the hermeneutics of charity um, to invert the notion of the hermeneutics of suspicion. And you might, uh, and I quite like this upbeat notion of, of how we do this uh, comparative criticism or whatever you're going to call it. And the most extreme form would be, can't say his name, but Guol Moro's forward, forward to his translation of Werther, where he says, all around oneself, everywhere and any time, is paradise, eternal joy, an overflowing soul. <laughs> I love that. Uh, in, in, and in a way, I like to think that's what we were doing here. Um, we got old Goethe again, his promiscuous love life, da, 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 da. but remember that promiscuity, properly conducted, requires rigorous discipline. <laughs> <laughs> and so Karin, uh, Karin Cole, Katrin Cole, sorry, uh, uh, it's just a typo, uh, Katrin Cole's um, admonition concerning metaphors should be borne in mind um, that you can get carried away on them. Uh, skills are important, of course, the polyglot skills I referred to earlier are important. I, I think that, you know, anglophones tend to be a bit nervous of those skills and, you know, I wish I'd been born in a a polyglot culture, so I'd have had the languages to start with. It's harder work for the rest of us, but one has to do some of it. So, um, yeah, I, I spoke to Professor Judy a, a while ago, trying to elucidate his phrase, um, well, his sentence, what used to be called theory is now called, called poetic criticism. Um, it's not for me to try to elucidate it, but he's writing a book called Thinking with Disorder, and that is the sort of thing we seem to be doing. <laughs> I thoroughly approve that project, and um, there are lots of other things here that we can mention, but I think I should stop there. Thank you so much. And now, and now let's, let's discuss more comments and thoughts and contributions. Anyone has energy left? Yeah. This won't be remarkably disordered. Um, just to, to answer your query about what's happening to modern languages in this state, I've been struck in this conference at um, a kind of asynchronicity that is uh, the cultural wars that began in the 1980s with the ascendancy of Reaganite neoliberalism. Uh, and that was when I finished my degree in conflict with words that you uh, devastated us in the ways that it's only beginning to devastate you. Now, this seems peculiar, seeing that they were stimulating factor. But in fact, uh, uh, modern languages have been systematically shut down in fundamental ways. Uh, I just received an email from a colleague this morning. Um, my department, which did at one point require two languages, I'm in the Department of English. 
and then five years ago said one of them could be computer programming. <laughs> <laughs> Now, at this meeting, and uh, I'm told, I'll have to take these and I'll go back, but the majority vote is to eliminate all language requirements. Uh, the the college is proposing suspending uh, the PhD program in German uh, and in classics. So it's not just modern languages. And in the studies, and French and Italian are being targeted. Right? So it's not the panacea kind of at all uh, where we're at. The old solution, of course, of, of requiring modern languages and compared to literature functioning as a kind of bridge, which was fought with political struggles, right, because of the fear that English will absorb everything and conflict becomes the, the, the motor uh, in that process, has, is really buckling severely uh, under, uh, uh, again, the forces of neoliberalism, which had gained its amazing uh, Arduino's product, Cambridge. Is, is looking at the Thatcherite metrics. And, and it's, it's across the board. Mm -hmm. We've been looking over here at you guys for a few years saying, oh, what was me? And you saw that would call me up and say, I've got to do this and that. I'm glad I don't have to do that. But I'm thinking we're safe that the big pond will protect us. But I'm afraid it hasn't done so. So uh, if, if you guys can push back that tide, Maybe again, in a belated way in 10 years, we'll copy you and <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to pick up on uh, Laura Marcus's point, actually. It goes back to something that em Emily Feiner said. Uh, Emily said, when, when the students arrive uh, at St. Andrews, it's you who tell them that Anna Karenina, they look on the back of the book, of course, and they've got the Penguin or, or the World Classics, and just say literature, won't it? You won't say Russian. And you have to tell them, no, no, that belongs, the academic tells them, that belongs in Russian literature. You need to know that. Right? Whereas they've actually arrived thinking, what I want to study, in a sense, is literature. And I think you find that often with English literature students as well. And the point is, it's, it's the institutional dimension to this, to the, to the emergence of the, what George Steiner in, in, the mid, uh, in the mid 70s when he was reviewing um, Karl Marx and world literature talked, even then he talked about the agonizingly slow emergence or beginnings of comparative literature in, in Britain. And of course I think what we, one of the things that's really come out clearly at, at this event has been how that, that agonizing slowness has everything to do with power, with politics, with questions of empire, with, with the relationship between Britain and the continent, with modern languages and what their what their function has been. Everyone knows that the great many of the great comparatists in Britain are either not British or they come from Scotland. Or, <laughs> uh, I mean that's a fact, and there are all sorts of political and institutional reasons for that. And I do just want to say that I know Matthew has been doing what he's been doing now for some considerable years, but he's proving that you can make institute individuals, groups of individuals, can make these these kind of differences within the institutions, slow, agonizingly slowly, but nonetheless institutions can undergo transformation. I think we're all, we're all in that process, we're experiencing that with him, uh, that transformation of Oxford as an institution in the way it addresses this. But I've often worried that one of the things that comparatists themselves worry about is, do I have enough languages? And, and, and I teach in a comparative literature department where, yes, of course, we encourage languages. And yes, of course, we prefer it when our students come from Luxembourg or from Eastern Europe because they tend to have more. But we teach, we, we teach literature in translation. But when you compare the study of literature with, say, the, the study of philosophy, 
If you met someone who said, yes, I'm a professor of German philosophy, which in fact, de facto, is often the case, you know, you're <laughs> a professor, and they'll say, I'm a professor of philosophy, and they'll say, well, what do, what do, what do you write on? They say, oh, Kant, Hegel, and, and Husserl, or something like that. And you're like, well, surely that's a professor of German philosophy. No, professor of philosophy. We are, it seems to me, moving surely towards a world, towards an institutionalization of this, where we will talk about, we will talk about first literature, uh, which I like Ben's, Ben's question uh, to Katrin actually about, you know, what's, what's the import of the, of the world in world literature. We're moving towards that, and I think reflecting on why it is that we still worry so much about uh, that descriptor when we talk about literature. Uh, we, we tend to talk, we, we tend to refer back to language. We tend to say, look, there's a kind of embodiment in the literary that one can't really engage with unless one is dealing with something in the original. And, and there was, uh, I think you made the point about you can't, you shouldn't be reading Freud. No, 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 I no, no, let me rephrase that. It's a question of when one reads Freud, should one be able to read? Uh, not, I, I, you know, I, just it's not shame, reading yeah. Freud. I was, I was referring much, you know, specifically to students, say, doing a defil yeah. on Freud, Freud without having any yeah. access. That's quite different from yeah. saying you have to have journal to read Freud. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I mean, mm. yeah, I take, that, I, I take that point. But then the question then becomes, you know, there isn't a different relationship between thought and language or the matrix in philosophy, really. Mm -hmm. I don't think in much philosophy there is. There is in literature. So at some point, it seems to me inevitable, and there are global, you know, political reasons for this, we are going inevitably to move towards a situation where Anyone who is a is a comparative will be will not be a 1.0 FTE comparatist. We'll always we'll all be bits of this thing that is the comparatist, and, and I think that's what what this event is really showing very clearly. And I think that will continue. Not any of us can claim to be true comparatists. We'll be part of that phenomenon that is the comparatist that goes way beyond any individual's competence in language or languages or disciplines. It, it's to echo partly what you were saying there about reading in languages, but something that we've spoken about, Matthew, as well, is that as a modern linguist, reading in the original for literary texts, and yet when I'm invited to speak, teach on the theory course here, I'm teaching Bakhtin to people who are reading it in translation. And while we don't often meditate on the translation process, it's interesting to look at the spheres of writing where we worry about translation, and Laurie was saying about Freud, and those kind of texts where we assume... There isn't a problem, or, and, and it's interesting to see the mobility of certain kinds of critical writing and the fixedness of other kinds of critical writing. And that question of language of translation and the languages of criticism and, and thought is, I think, something I, I would want to meditate more on, think more of, is that this is often about literature and the influence of one author on another or a canon on another, but actually expanding the range and that question of take the Weltart or Weltart or, but actually what is, what is the, the literary text? Um, and I think there is a debate to be had about the use of what are often seen as second order texts where translation isn't a problem. Um, so I think, I think that's... that's the, other, the other thing is that I've been struck by is using linguistic knowledge to decenter yourself and to have other linguistic encounters. You cannot read Finnish naturalist fiction in English because it's not there. But if you read German, you can. And, and I'm not reading it as a German. Um, and there are all kinds of accesses that one gets through a second language. Um, uh, and 
people say to me, I want to read Mandelstam because he's wonderful. And I say, well, read him in German because he's better in German or whatever. <laughs> but there are, there are all kinds of other encounters which become possible, that, um, that kind of Moretius distant reading. It doesn't just have to be close reading in a language you know or a very distant reading that's enjoyable. But there is, I think, something in the middle where you can, and I don't, I don't know how many of us do that a, a lot of the time, but actually it's one of the joys of having a second language and then the, the access to different literatures which don't come into English but which do go into French or Italian or, or German that you can come up with. And, and theorising theorizing that use for, for a lot of literary history people have read in languages which weren't there first but they're reading translated into an, an interstitial language and I think that, that phenomenon is a, surely an important one. Um, I have been massively inspired. Um, I, I I, I had been so uninvolved in comparative literature for a while when I moved into nationalism studies, and to see that discussions didn't fall still, uh, but are continuing and are not going over old ground, but are developing, is, is very, very heartening. At the same time, that is happening in a climate which institutionally is not propitious in the least. Um, now, at the risk of opening, uh, I'd like to look at the, the wider context and what could be a very useful justification for this common enterprise. Um, and at the risk of, of opening a sort of Kantian Schleiter Fakultät, and I would not want to go into very minute turf wars with a lot of modern languages or linguistic expertise or how the languages are represented in the, in the humanities. What I see happening at many, many levels in, on the continent, and, and also here, I suppose, is the fact that the humanities are being cannibalized by the social sciences. Humanities and social sciences is becoming one unit. And I see in nationalism studies that um, the social sciences tend to be heedless of the agency of cultural reflection in the development of human affairs. That they tend to situate cultural practices um, uh, in a sort of a setting of social, political, and economic infrastructures, and that provides the explanation. Now, um, it strikes me that what is very important, and this has been criticized in a number of respects, it leads to what Ulrich Beck calls methodological nationalism, or what John Broyley calls internalism, because the society is always a single society, and they are locked up in their own regimes of historicity, and in their own uh, you know, economic structures and political structures. Um, what I found massively inspiring to take on, from my comparatist background into those discussions, is the mobility and the longevity of literature. Be, you can live in very different social regimes but share aesthetic regimes across borders. The uh, longevity of canonical works of literature is easily centuries, which outlasts the, you know, the active lifespan of most you know, school books or, or diplomatic uh, you know, uh, white papers or whatever it is that sociologists or polit polit political scientists look at. And also it provides wormholes, shortcuts, between drastically different societies in drastically different languages. Um, it's a, a sort of a mycelium that keeps all the mushrooms together. Um, and that is what culture does, it crosses borders. It, um, and it is what is signally disregarded in the social sciences. And it's a huge asset, a huge trump card that we have to offer in, in, in the, you know, the analysis of culture and human affairs. Um, and if you thematize the mobility and the uh, you know, the transnational mobility and also the diachronic longevity of literature. Uh, you want to be aware of the type of borders 
which literature is able to cross and negotiate without reifying the borders as being constitutive of categorical units. But I think there is a, a huge you know, jewel in, uh, in our, our trousseau that we can use in, in the future, which we lose sight of if we only think of what distinguishes us from other schools of, of, of doing literature, because it's in the wider context that our main value lies. Yeah, I just had a few reflections that I thought might bring together on some of the points that have been made in this last panel, and I was particularly struck by Terence's variation <coughs> on the Davidsonian principle of charity, the hermeneutics of charity. I hope this term hermeneutics is one that's been sort of passed throughout the conference, but hasn't really been addressed uh, head on. And really brings together a few of the points that were made in, in the concluding panel here this evening. You were talking about positionality, Matthew, um, and taking into account our own hermeneutic positions. Of course, this whole conference is about comparative criticism, so criticism, and that's essentially what we're doing. We're engaging in, in hermeneutics in a science of reading and science of interpretation. Um, and it strikes me at the risk of introducing another metaphor that one of the sort of key tropes of that, at least in modern humanities, is, is Gardner's idea of the fusion of horizons. And the point about that, which goes back to a point that was made uh, in this last panel too, is that horizons, we never reach them. But what we're doing essentially is we're fusing our different horizons, we're bringing together, for better or for worse, our own positions, our own positionality, which is both enabling, but also to some extent constraining, disabling, in terms of that has limits and one can never escape that particular position. But we're just fusing that with these other horizons, and that's what we do as comparatives. But the, the point is that we never actually reach the horizon because it always recedes. So I just wanted to share that and highlight that term hermeneutics as a way of bringing together some of the things that we've been saying about comparative criticism. Although it wasn't my phrase, it was invented by somebody else in some So I just wanted not to be a scribe the author. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful, I think. Uh, I've been to many comparative literature conferences in my time and have organized quite a few. Uh, but I thought that, um, especially after the first day, there was a tremendous sense uh, of a kind of internal drive to overcome our own limitations, great as those are. Uh, and that um, one felt one was delving further, all right. Some of us know English, some of us know French, some of us know German, some of us know those. Uh, but then came Arabic, uh, and one has to suddenly say, my God, I don't know Arabic. I don't know anything about it except for a trip I took to Egypt or to then we get people talking about Japan and about uh, the necessity of uh, kind of colonial criticism, which we've heard a lot about in the last 20 years, but perhaps we have not been directly involved in. But one then sees the arguments that are coming out of the fact that people have become involved in colonial criticism but that that covers itself only a very small time span, that that is a limitation, that is not an expansion in itself. And as the discussion went on, I thought that became clearer and clearer as people said, well, I think it was you actually who said, um, it's all very well to talk about the Japanese empire, 
uh, but what about the much longer histories of India, for example? Uh, we never quite, I think, in that discussion got to China, but that was, I thought, the next stop, that if we really serious about comparative literature. We have to know a lot more than we know now. Um, and we have to take steps to know it. And that those places are not out of bounds. They're not places we don't have to know about. They're places we do have to know about. And they're languages we have to know something about even if we're not fluent in them. We can't be deaf altogether to them and deaf to those cultures. Um, if we're going to talk comparatively, we must have more people, more representatives from, from those cultures. We've had some, but uh, not, not enough really to plunge us back as far in history as we need to go. And of course, that is now the history of the future as well. Uh, the power of China. Uh, we need to look at uh, what Joseph Needham wrote for uh, 50 years uh, during his life, uh, exploring the history of Chinese science and how that stands up next to uh, Western science and what relation Chinese science had to the political development of Chinese. Uh, and need to look, I've heard several papers recently in comparative context where people were talking about the reception of particular German writers, or Stefan Zweig, for example, in China. And I, I would not have understood that or guessed that Stefan Zweig was received in China at all. And so there's a feeling that we're sort of moving in the right direction, uh, but it's only—it's still only a few people. It's only some tentative reaching out towards uh, the breadth uh, and the historical extent that we really need, and that means uh, I, I think it was Terence who said real history. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, not just frames of reference or uh, metaphors across the board, but we, there are more things that we need to know, actually, about, uh, and that we're, uh, we're ignorant and remiss if we don't know about them. So we've had this happening, I think, around us on the fringes, on the margins uh, of our normal engagement with literature with our own subjects. Um, and this conference, I thought, did a great deal to show us where those borders now exist and how to get at least part of the way beyond those limitations and to feel obliged to know more. Uh, somebody uh, spoke about an uh, arrow um, or conception of imagination in Arabic. And I had noticed that in the um, conference brochure. And I said, what is this? You know, I've never heard of this before. And it turned out to be tremendously interesting. I would like to know more about it. But I don't. Now, where do I go to find out more about that? Where is the bibliography that's going to help me to do that? I don't know if we're going to collect some bibliographies from people if we're collecting papers and such. 
whether we can attach to that the bibliographies that would allow us to understand uh, an Arabic conception of imagination that is in fact unknown to us, and would seem to open up all kinds of possibilities, both in poetry and in art and philosophy. It must have done in the past of Arabic literature. So there was that sense of excitement of the, the, the logic of the discussion um, pressing us to learn more, know more, uh, to recognize our own limitations and that we only have a piece of information and experience that we need. And I love the idea of uh, having a list of uh, second languages in which one can read third languages that one knows a lot of cases of that, you know, where um, I've been told uh, that Pessoa, Fernando Pessoa, the wonderful Portuguese poet, and I've read quite a bit in English, but I'm told that his français are uh, best in German, so I had to buy a German copy, fortunately, I don't jump, but if they said, you have to read Pessoa in um, Hungarian, I, I, I find myself <laughs> anyway, it was exciting and stimulating. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to make one comment about something that's come out of a number of different um, panels that I thought was uh, interesting in terms of what we think our, our object of study is. Um, and it came up right at the beginning when Wen Jin was saying that the conflict between area studies and, and, and theory. And uh, came up vividly when, when uh, Maha and Ramal were talking about getting local. Uh, and it came me also during the um, the Nihali Zegan Masaks that we talked about music, in particular Wagner. Uh, and um, I was thinking about Thomas Mann and Wagner and the fact that you can make it, an argument about where the light motif comes from. It doesn't come from Wagner, it comes from Dickens. He read Dombey and Sarah at times, he writes his wooden books. And so you can suddenly see the light motif is not this grand idea and thing, it's just a, it's a clever comic device for, for, for characterization. And then I raised the question, so why does it make such a big deal about Wagner? It occurred to me that so when, when you were talking about Wagner, you weren't really talking about the music, you're talking about this whole social practice, which is being a Wagnerian, and, um, and, and, and all the kind of model of, of, of art that 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 entails. And I said, essentially what's kind of a number of things is that we're not really studying texts or paintings or pieces of music, but somehow these cultural practices through which people make their lives meaningful and happy. And, and I suppose just as kind of a final note, I wanted to, and it's, it's a version of Terence's criticism from the bottom up, and I suppose I want to go even below the text, kind of the, the, the reason why people buy books and how they use them and what they, how they talk to their friends after some important book and, and what they mean when they say I'm Wagnerian. Um, so basically I just want to make a final plea for Maybe areas like the study of cultural practices, and that's what our comparative criticism would be. I find myself saying again to you, bravo. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> Firstly, I, I speak with some repetition because um, I'm a foreign. But that's an existential condition. But I, I, I'm, I'm struck by the, uh, dare I say, hope that uh, I've seen in, in, in the past couple of days coming from the space where I indicated a moment ago the social sciences have consumed everything. 
including their own programs of literature. And the life sciences have consumed everything. So that uh, from Harvard University to the University of Pittsburgh, which is a huge medical school, they're fully in humanities programs. So that you guys are having these debates and crises, and you're struggling. It's kind of like analogous to the fact that if there's a 52% turnout in the electorate in Great Britain, you're scandalized. Whereas we never have more than a 25% turnout in the electorate. That is to say, the, the war of positions and the struggle over hegemony is still going on. Here's the point of disagreement. I mentioned uh, uh, a very important person, Miss Island. A very important interview that Muhammad Salomon gave with him. Uh, this idea is important because there's an event that's happening in the world right now. And it's the revolution of humanity and dignity. Of humanity and dignity. Why that term humanity? Because it's going to go to the point of what you said in the moment of disagreement. The revolution of humanity and dignity, when everybody else wanted to call it the Jasmine Revolution, a particular insult because Ben Ali in 1988, my first to called his coup the Jasmine. <laughs> and the Jasmine states that uh, just the production of Jasmine involved the depleting of resources for the people in the hinterland to serve tourists from Europe. Right? The Tunisians called it the revolution for dignity and democracy right? and humanity. Now, Misadi's connection to that, bear with me, is the program that produced a per capita education rate for men, correct me if I'm wrong, Mohammed Salah, but the last time I looked between 18 and 35, better than 70% have post high school education degrees, and for women, 50%. This is unheard of. This is unheard of was produced by the Messiah in his program. State violence, yes, admittedly, but the project of producing a certain kind of modernist subject and to address a problem that Fanon referred to as a part of the project of decolonization, and that is how do you produce a new humanism? How do you get beyond the pitfalls of national politics and national cultural formation? So, Bourguiba and Misaidi sought to find a solution to that problem. And it's produced a population that's so thoroughly imbricated in the discourse of humanism that it's become popular and ubiquitous and generated a certain kind of ethics. So, Muhammad Salomri was asking him about his use of Hadith Isa ibn Hisham in this project. And Misaidi quotes him with an Right? The subject who is restless. Now that particular line from Al-Muqanabi's poem is important because as, as Al-Ma'ari glosses it, it's, it's, it's being on a camel's back, going from one homeland to another homeland but having no particular homeland. Or what the Jamaican uh, Maroons call the vagabond. Right? Or what W. Du Bois called existentially the Negro, meaning that derivative articulated at the asymptotes of the hyperbola. That's a line used in the letter in 1956. So in this I was saying to be the new human is to have no position, but to be in movement, to think in movement. And in thinking in movement, 
to have access, and Muhammad will correct me if I've got it wrong, to have access to as many of the human expressions as possible. So the struggle we're having with the social sciences or the quantitative method really is over the issue of the human. And your remark, where I said bravo, was precisely marking that the question of literature, the essence of who's going to define literature? Thirty years ago when I began, the things that I understood as forms of cultural expression in which there were the expressions of how life is lived wouldn't be considered literature. We have to have some sense of what we mean. I think what we mean really are those particular material forms, and here I'm in Viking, by which we express our understanding of the world in moments of barbarity and transformation. Whatever may be the particularities of them. And the particularities of the expression, the style matters. They become institutions. But what we're focusing on is how we're human. Now, if that's the case, then we don't need area studies. I think we need to do, as compared to this, is first ask, who are we? Right? What do we mean when we say we're human? And what are the discourses of the human? And the way in which our practices of criticism enable an ongoing, perpetual interrogation of those problems. Right? So no area studies. No, I, think, I, mean, I think basically that's a very nice articulation of where I, where I, where I mentioned the project was going. And it's such an area that is precisely towards some sort of differentiated ongoing interpretation of human beings. Right? Well, let us be fan on it. I think we must because. We... I'll be very brief. Okay. Very late. I, I, I was extremely happy to be here. Dialogues are extremely important. My only very tentative suggestion would be, and I know it's a, it's a question of finance, financial aid or whatever. Uh, in the future, try to invite someone from countries that were not represented here. Uh, and I know that many countries were, and I was very happy to see that. So someone, for example, from Russia, or someone who lives there who is not who is not in exile, because his or her perspective might be very, very different from ours, or Latin America, or let's say South Africa, or a visual artist who, who, who has a theoretical mind. Uh, it was great uh, uh, fun to have the last talk on uh, Michel de Guy, whom I find that, well, I, I find his poetry rather difficult to read, but he is someone who, who, who has ideas, even about comparative uh, literature, and, and I agree that it's not a very good term, so comparative uh, criticism is probably better. So, in order to have, uh, to continue the dialogue, which, which was so important here, again. Okay.